1 Samuel 14, we're going to look today at the character of Jonathan. The character of Jonathan. Jonathan's one of the unsung heroes of the Old Testament. He's often uh, overlooked, underrated. Jonathan is the son of Saul. He's the crown prince of Israel. He's the best friend of David. And he's a tremendous, tremendous godly character. First mention of Jonathan in scripture is 1 Samuel 14. So we're going to dive in. Jonathan, really, we're going to look at two aspects of Jonathan's life. One, his tremendous faith. He was a man of phenomenal faith in Almighty God. And two, he was a great friend. So faith and friendship will be a bit of our themes today. 1 Samuel 14, verse 1. Keep your Bibles open and keep your pen out because I'm going to be having the underline and stuff, taking notes, etc. Because I knew you were all good students, right? You've got your caffeine, so we'll trust you're going to stay awake. If not, we'll have somebody take care of you. Verse 1, now the day came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to this young man who was carrying his armor, come and let us cross over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the yonder side, other side, but he did not tell his father. Verse 2, in contrast to Jonathan, Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah underneath the pomegranate tree which is in Migron. So for centuries now, remember the general theme. God had given Israel the promised land. And the command when they got into the promised land is that they were to drive out evil, wicked Canaanites from the land and destroy that culture. If they failed to drive them out, God had told them in Deuteronomy 20, they will teach you to do evil. You will learn how to sin and you will learn how to worship idols and you will wind up rejecting me and worshiping idols. Because here's an interesting principle that we compromise all the time. When you compromise with evil, you learn to do evil. When you compromise with evil, you learn to do evil. Evil is not a neutral entity. It's an active substance in the prescription of this world. It's not an inert substance. You know when you take a prescription, they give you the inert substances and then the active ones. Evil is active. Evil is toxic and evil is contagious. So when you compromise with evil, you learn to do evil. Now, the context right now is the Philistines have invaded Israel again, and they've sent three raiding parties into southern Israel. One of them has set up a garrison at the pass of Michmash. And Michmash is a, a particular high spot in southern Israel, and Rob, of course, is going to put a map on uh, the screen for you at that point in time to give you an overview of the region at large. Michmash is north, Geba is in the south, and we're going to get into that in verse 4 here in a second. The Philistines are in the land. They are wicked Phoenicians. They come from Phoenicia and Crete. They're obviously idol worshipers. They're not supposed to be in the land. Saul is the commander-in-chief of the Israeli army, and he's supposed to be organizing an expeditionary force to drive him out. And Saul is doing what? He's sitting underneath a tree sipping his pomegranate tea. Not exactly what you'd call active faith. Now I want you to notice the vast difference in verse 1 and verse 2 between Jonathan and Saul. Saul is passive in the face of this danger. Jonathan is active. Saul's unbelief has crippled his ability to take action. Jonathan's faith is energizing his action. Saul is content to let God's enemies occupy God's land while Jonathan is committed to obey God's command to drive them out. Saul is willing to compromise with evil in order to remain comfortable. Interesting. I find many, many, many people, their God is comfort. And if it takes compromise to remain comfortable, I'm very willing to compromise. You know anybody like that? You looked in the mirror this morning? I love you. Be very careful what we compromise for. And the reason I'm hammering this one is when you're in a culture, when you're swimming in a cultural ocean, that's largely committed to evil, it is very easy for you to get infected with that disease. Now, we are to be in the world. We are to be part of the culture in the sense of we're ministering to the culture, but we're not to be infected by the culture. Saul is obviously infected by the culture. Jonathan is not. We're going to find out that Jonathan is a faithful man who's willing to put his life on the line in order to obey God. You've ever noticed that Saul <clears throat> is the kind of person who waits when he should act, and who acts when he should wait. He just can't seem to get it right. Saul knows God's will, he just won't do God's will. What did Pastor Roger say this morning? 
One of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to guide you into truth. But if you disobey the truth you have, you don't get any more light, right? You have to obey what you know. Saul obviously is not willing to do that. Jonathan, on the other hand, is very much willing to do that. Uh, it's interesting that Jonathan does not tell his father where he's going. <clears throat> I'm reasonably convinced he doesn't tell him he's going to initiate attack because jo Saul would have commanded them to sit, stand down, do nothing, wait. So verse 15, I'm sorry, verse 6. I'm going to jump ahead. Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, his armor bearer, Come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, the people outside the covenant of faith. Only the Israelites were circumcised inside the covenant of faith. These are pagan Philistines. Come and let us cross over to the garrisons uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. Here's what I want you to underline. For the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. Here's the principle. People of faith believe that God is never limited by circumstances, no matter what they are. How many of you have circumstances? How many of you would be willing to swap your circumstances? And you say, well, Brad, for whose? Right? I mean, all of you have circumstances, right? If you took all your circumstances and put them in the middle of the room, you would probably come here in the pile and pick yours out because you know your circumstances, right? Somebody else has circumstances that may be less, well, less bad than yours, but you don't know them, right? So people of faith believe that God is never limited by circumstances, no matter what they are. That means your circumstances. God is not limited by your circumstances, and we're going to find out that Jonathan believed that. This statement of faith on Jonathan's part, the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few, that's a statement of faith. He believes that Almighty God is not limited by human numbers because Jonathan's faith is in God's power, not man's power. He knows that these pagan Philistines don't belong in God's land and God will support those who trust and obey him to drive them out. Now it's interesting, Saul is waiting for the Philistines to bring the battle to him. Saul is reacting. Jonathan, as a matter of faith, is going to bring the fight to the enemy. He's going to bring the fight to the enemy. Faith moves into the fight, not away from the fight. Faith is always active. Faith is always active. Now, sometimes that doesn't mean you always move. Sometimes faith means you pray and you wait on the Lord. But that's active. It's not passive, right? The best defense is a good offense. Verse 8, Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, obviously Jonathan and his armor bearer are lower. They're going to have to climb up. Then we will go up for, underline this, the Lord has given them into our hands and this shall be the sign for us. So Jonathan wants to attack this garrison. But he wants to make sure that God wants him to attack this garrison that has got time. So he proposes a test. We're going to stand up where we are. They're now in hiding. The two of us, armor bearer and John, we're going to stand up and let the Philistine garrison view us. If the Philistine soldiers tell us they are going to come down to us, we'll stand where we are. Got it? But if they say come up to us, that means they're either too lazy or too scared to leave their garrison, and that's going to be our sign that God wants us to attack, and he's going to give us the victory. So in some ways, this is, it's not quite like Gideon's fleece, but they're basically saying, Lord, we want to make sure that we're acting when you want us to act, so we're just going to put this sign out there. If this is something you want us to do, then make it pretty plain. Proverbs 3, 5 says what? In all your ways acknowledge him, and what? He will direct your paths. My problem with that verse is the second word. It's in all. I have no problem, you know, in some. But in all, it says, in all your ways acknowledge him. That means there is nothing in your life that's too small to pray about. I said too small. I know you'll pray about the big stuff. Oh God, I can't deal with this. Yeah, it's the stuff we think we can deal with. That's the problem. It's not the stuff we know we can't deal with. We'll pray about the stuff we know we can't, right? You guys pray about the stuff you know you can't deal with? 
Somebody say yes, you do. Okay, just making sure, right? In all your ways. So verse 12, what is the response of the Philistines? So the men of the garrison, that's the Philistines, hailed Jonathan as his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will tell you something. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, underline this, come up after me. Now this is the statement of faith. For the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Here's the principle. People of faith trust God enough to act on what he says, regardless of consequences. I had to put that last phrase in there, guys. I'm sorry. I didn't even want to put it in there. People of faith trust God enough to act on what he says, regardless of consequences. The Philistines have told them to come up. Now, the Philistines told them to come up because how many, how many Israelites are there here? Two. Two against the whole Philistine garrison. I mean, there's no big threat here, right? Now, here is where faith turns into shoe leather. Here is where faith turns into action. Here is where faith turns into taking risks. Leaders lead. Jonathan is leading. He says, follow me. I'm the first one into the battle. Here's an interesting question. When you pray about something and you get the go-ahead from God, do you go ahead or do you hold back? I mean, you've prayed about it. You said, Lord, what do you want me to do? It's clear what you're supposed to do. But going forward involves risk. Have you ever noticed that? Faith always involves risk. There is a big difference between hiking in the Sierras, let's say hiking up Half Dome, and going to Disneyland, right? Going to Disneyland is a pretty predictable arrangement, right? You begin the ride at this point and you figure in two minutes and 38 seconds, I'll be back here. I might have puked, but I'll be back here, right? <laughs> in the car, safe, right? It's a predictable scenario. It requires no faith to spend 100 bucks. It may cause you some heartburn, but there's no faith involved in buying a ticket for Disneyland and taking a ride, correct? Very predictable. But when you're going to climb Half Dome, there is some risk because you might get hurt. Yes, Greg? Yes. My man went hiking up there. Yeah, leg. I mean, there's risk. Faith always involves risk. There are two Israelite soldiers. There's the whole Philistine garrison. And Jonathan says, we're going after because the Lord has given them the hand of Israel. He's declaring the victory before the battle starts. So the battle is won before it begins. Tremendous odds, two against the whole garrison. But Jonathan's faith was not in the two of them, was it? Jonathan's faith was in Almighty God, right? Interesting, the name Jonathan means the Lord has given. And Jonathan says the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. And God gave Jonathan to David. A great gift, the best friend you ever had. So Rob's going to show you a photo of these two crags that they're fighting on. Verse 13 and 14. Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet. This is a very steep incline they're climbing up to with his armor bearer behind him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer put some to death after him. After the first slaughter, slaughter with Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about a half a furrow with an acre of land. So you have two rocky crags and there's a ravine in between. The northern crag is called Bozes, B-O-Z-E-Z, -E -Z, and it means the miry one, the miry one, like mud. The southern crag was called Senna, and it means the thorny one. So you can climb up the thorny one, you can climb up the miry one, right? In between them is a wadi. It's a ravine. A wadi is what takes floodwaters, generally only flash floods. And now it's called Wadi Suenet, right? The only time there's water in this wadi is when there's a flash flood but you can see the gradient that they have to climb to get there. Now, Jonathan and his armor bearer climb up the steep crag on the north called Bozes because the Michmash is on the north, the Israelites on the south, there's a wadi, there's a ravine in between. So they're climbing up the hill and there's only two of them. You also need to know that there's only two swords in all of Israel. There's only two swords in the whole land. Saul has one, and he's sipping tea under the pomegranate tree, and Jonathan has the other one. 
So the armor bearer is either carrying an ox goad or a plowshare. A plowshare is what you clean a plow with, it's a sharp thing, right? Or maybe an ax. Not exactly armed to the teeth, right? And they get into a hand-to-hand -hand combat with about 20 soldiers in a very small plot of land, less than a half acre, and they kill 20 of them with one sword and maybe an ax. Whoa. I'd say they were effective, right? A little supernatural help there? Not yet. You're going to see that. So we had this garrison of Philistine soldiers on the top of this rise, and the number of soldiers they had to face at any time, I don't know how dispersed they were. Interestingly enough, now you see God move. Verse 15. Jonathan acts in faith. Jonathan obeys what he believes God wants him to do, steps out in faith, takes risks, put his life in his hands because he believes God's going to move. And verse 15, God moves. And there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked so that it became a great trembling. What did Jonathan say? The Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. It doesn't take a hundred. It doesn't take two. It takes one person of faith, and Jonathan had that faith. God now is intervening in the battle himself. He sends the spirit of fear into the Philistines. It's almost a sense of panic. You're going to find out here in a few verses. They do panic. And he also sends a physical trembling. He sends an earthquake. An earthquake. Verse 20, we find out, Behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was very, very great confusion. Apparently, the Philistines thought there would be an attack by a much larger force, and they panicked. And God sent such great confusion among them that they began to fight each other. Remember, God does this quite often. When Gideon was, was commanded to attack the Midianites, Gideon had how many people? 300, and the Midianites had 120,000. And it said when, God, when they broke the torches, I mean broke the pitchers and lifted the torches, the sword of the Lord of Gideon, God sent confusion into the Midianites. They started killing each other, Right? So it's interesting. You would never attack a garrison with only one sword. God wasn't dependent on Jonathan's sword, was he? He used the Philistine swords against each other. They started whacking each other. God's not limited by one sword. Some of us, some of you and me, are going to face circumstances this week that you are going to look at and you are going to say, this is overwhelming. The probability that I will succeed in this endeavor is zero from a human standpoint. You know something? God is not limited by your circumstances. He asks you, he commands us to walk by faith, obey what he's told us, and let him deal with the consequences. Amen? Never. One of the things that Satan loves to do is he loves to take our attention off the king and look at the circumstances. And when you look at the circumstances with human eyes, you go, no way, no how. And you know what you'll do? You'll go drink tea like Saul. You'll curl up in a ball someplace and you go, I don't want to deal with this. Right? I want to go cocoon someplace. I don't want to be in the battle anymore. I just want comfort. And you'll withdraw. And you have lots of friends that do that friends, acquaintances, right? They withdraw. Jonathan says, no, the Lord's put us in the battle, and as Christians, we're in the spiritual battle. But the odds are overwhelming. Except, who's on your side? What's, what's the old hymn? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Who is that? Jesus Christ, right? You have the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. What do we find out this morning? Who lives inside you? The Holy Spirit. The odds are good. They're all in your favor. Verse 23 tells us, as a result of Jonathan's obedience and faith, the Lord delivered Israel that day. So you're going to find out in between, I'm not going to go through the details, but the rest of Israel joined in the attack and God routed the Philistines and God gets the credit. It doesn't say, so Jonathan delivered Israel that day, does it? It says the Lord delivered Israel that day. At the end of the battle, in verse 45... The people of Israel acknowledge that Jonathan has brought about a great deliverance in Israel because he worked with God this day, right? He worked with God this day. 
That's what faith does. That's what faith does. God loves to respond to people who trust him. Last week, we, we talked about a verse briefly, 2 Chronicles 16.9, one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 16.9. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. If your heart is completely his, he will strongly support you, period. And if you say, well, I don't have very much faith, Brad, that's okay. It's not the size of your faith that matters. It's the size of your God that matters. Amen? All right. So Jonathan was a warrior. <clears throat> he was a man of faith. God responded to his faith, gave Israel a supernatural victory. It's interesting that Jonathan said, God is not restrained to save by many or by few. Where did we hear that last week? Who else said that? David, fighting Goliath, right? He wasn't too impressed with the nine foot nine guy. He was impressed with the God of Israel who was going to win the battle. Jonathan and David share the same faith, the same passion for the same king. Turn to 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel 18. Now, 1 Samuel 18 takes place after 1 Samuel 17, after the victory over Goliath. Last week, we looked at David and Goliath. David has killed Goliath, cut off his head. Philistines flee. Israel chases the Philistines 10, 15 miles south and east, runs them back into their homeland, kills thousands of them, lots of booty because they just abandoned everything. So that's a plunder. After the victory, they come back, and 1 Samuel 18, Saul is having a conversation with Jonathan, and Jonathan, I mean, Saul is having a conversation with David, and Jonathan overhears King Saul and David talking. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us what the content of that conversation is, but it tells us what the result in Jonathan's heart of that conversation is. We do know that Jonathan and David were both men of great faith and great courage who were committed to loving and obeying God. And it seems, above all else, Jonathan was attracted to David's faith. Jonathan and David had much in common. Both of them are warriors. Both of them are Israeli patriots. Both of them have a supreme faith that God is going to keep his word and keep his covenant with Israel. And both of them want God to be glorified. Now, if you go to chapter 18, verse 1, this is after this conversation with King Saul and David took place after the victory over Goliath, verse 18.1. Now it came about that when David had finished speaking to Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Now the word knit here. Any of you knit? Nobody. Any of you do Velcro? <laughs> That's instant knitting, right? Instant knitting. To knit means to bind up, to knot together, to make inseparable. To, it literally means to make one, right? So Jonathan sees in David a kindred spirit. They have a common purpose to God's glory. They have a common purpose to walk by faith. And that common purpose makes them soul brothers. They are literally have a deep bond of friendship. They are soulmates who are committed to God above all else. Interesting. The great commandment is what? You shall the Shema, Deuteronomy. You, know that. you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And Jesus in Matthew 22 said, and there is a second commandment like unto the first, you shall love your cousin as yourself. Is that what it says? Your neighbor. Yeah, that's the person who lives next to you now. Whoa, him, her? got to be kidding. The one across the street, forget about, right? Yeah. Now, you shall love your neighbor. And of course, the rich young ruler said, and who is my neighbor? And that's when Jesus told him the story of the great Samaritan, good Samaritan. We're all neighbors, right? There is nobody who's not your neighbor. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Interesting that you will be unable to love your neighbor as you should unless you first love God as you should. There's a reason why that sequence came, right? I told Mary when we got married that I didn't have enough love for her. She deserved far more love than I had. Guys, have you told your brides that? If you haven't, you need to. She's already got to figure it out. 
Your well is shallow. By the way, ladies, yours is too. But I did tell Maren that I believe the Holy Spirit could teach me how to love her the way she deserved to be loved. If you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, your reservoir will run dry routinely when it comes to loving your neighbor. Amen? It runs dry already because it's got holes in it, right? The reservoir has to be filled up routinely. That's why we come to God's house, among other things, and why you open the Word every day. So only God gives us the capacity to love others properly. Now, loving others as yourself does not mean narcissism. It means you put their needs ahead of your needs. Take another cup of coffee. You're going to need it, right? Right? <laughs> you put their needs in front of your needs. Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing, nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And I'm thinking, can't I do anything? Just a little selfishness? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Now that's a snapshot of how Jonathan loved David. If you look at verse 2, you'll find out that Saul was attracted to David too, but for very different reasons. Verse 2 said, Saul took David that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Now Saul is in a perpetual state of war and he's always looking for first class warriors to add to his military staff. And he was way too valuable as a warrior to let him go back to farming. Now here's the backstory of that and we don't think about it. Jesse had how many sons? Eight sons. We know that three of them are in the military. And now the fourth one got conscripted. My question, who the heck is running the farm? Who's watching the sheep, right? What did Samuel tell the Israelites before? When you get a king, he's going to draft your best for his purposes. If you got eight sons to farm and now you have four, how many acres go fallow? I mean, we read this stuff and we go, well, let's, un let's unpack that a little bit and find out what the implication of half your family's in the military. By the way, they didn't volunteer, they're drafted, okay? Just saying. Verse 3, Jonathan loves David at himself, and as a result of what he felt in verse 1, Jonathan makes a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. That's the second time we've seen that, loved him as himself. It's pretty sacrificial at this point in time. The evidence that Jonathan gave that he loved David as himself is in verse 4. Jonathan stripped himself of his robe, the robe that was on him, and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword, his bow, and his belt. Here's the principle. Friends who love God serve each other and not themselves. I've known people who spent most of their life serving themselves. You know anybody like that? They don't make good friends. This covenant that Jonathan made is a unilateral covenant, Right? Now, a covenant, just so you know, is a binding agreement. It's a commitment that defines the term of a relationship. Those of you that are married, <clears throat> happily or unhappily, made a covenant. Those of you that are in a relationship with Jesus Christ made a covenant. Yes? yes. Say yes. It defines the terms of the relationship. Now, in a spousal marriage covenant or an employee covenant, whatever it is, it's a joint bilateral agreement. Your relationship with Jesus Christ is not a bilateral agreement. Who wrote the terms of the covenant for your relationship with Jesus Christ? He did. He said, I love you. In order to have a relationship with me, you need to understand you're a sinner, you need forgiveness, and I'm going to pay the penalty for your sin, right? This covenant is, begins as a unilateral, right here. You're going to see that it's going to move to a bilateral in a second. Now, Jonathan's the crown prince. Jonathan is the heir. He is going to inherit the throne. David, at this point in time, is about 18. 17 or 18. Just took out Goliath. Jonathan is at least one generation older. Jonathan's probably 25 years older than David, so he's probably in the 41, 42, 43, somewhere in that neck of the woods. He's been the prince for some time. He's already commanding one-third of the army. 
He's already won a major, two major battles, chapter 14. But Jonathan recognizes that God has chosen David to be the next king and not him, right? David must have told him that Samuel had anointed him king five years ago at age 12. Jonathan has a choice. Either I fight against God's choice like Saul is doing, or I submit myself to God's sovereign choice and surrender my will to God's will, and that's what Jonathan does. How many political leaders today surrender power for the benefit of a friend who they love? I mean, you look at me like I've got three heads. The Bakersfield Californian, two days ago, the, in the front headline it said nasty. That's the kind of campaign they're talking about. It was a description of the political campaign. That is not exactly putting your needs in front of others. One of the things that politics reminds me of, not all politics, I get to be real careful here. Don't let me paint too broad a brush. But our culture worships self. Our culture doesn't worship humility. Our culture doesn't, doesn't honor humility. It honors the, you know, it's all about me and I'm individualistic and I'm gonna make this thing happen. And so we wind up with a lot of people in our culture that are into themselves, narcissists, as opposed to humility. See, Saul hung on to his position as king. He grasped it, right? He craved the praise of people more than the praise of God. Saul loved his position as king more than he loved to praise the king of kings. Jonathan, on the other hand, gave up his claim to the throne. He just abdicated it, right? And chose to humble himself and be David's servant. Now, Jonathan, in this case, is behaving like who? Like Jesus. Philippians 2, 5 to 8. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, royalty, king of kings, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking the form of a doulos, a bondservant, the lowest of the servants, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Jonathan is living out this same attitude that Jesus did. Jonathan does not grasp the position of being heir apparent, the next king. Like Jesus, Jonathan submits himself to the will of God and submits his position to the will of God. He abdicates his future right to the throne because he understands that God has chosen somebody besides him. Wow. That's tough. That's dying to self, right? He serves God by serving David. It's interesting. The more we serve each other, the more we serve Jesus. You and I are members of the body of Christ. So when you serve the body of Christ, who are you ultimately serving? Christ himself, right? Now, it's interesting. As a symbol of this humility, as a symbol of this abdication of the role... Jonathan takes off his royal robe. This is not a bathrobe. This is a royal robe, right, and gives it to David. A robe was a visible symbol of authority and power. Everyone in the kingdom who saw David wearing Jonathan's robe would know what? Jonathan is supporting David as the next king. Saul knew that too, by the way. Remember when Jacob gave Joseph a robe of many colors, right? That was really communicating his favor and his authority and his honor of his son Joseph. What's the first thing the other 11 brothers did when they got Joseph away from his dad? Took that coat off now, baby. I mean, that was a symbol of authority and they wanted that often before they sold him into slavery. Remember when Elijah, God had met him on the mountain and said, you are going to appoint a successor. And that successor was Elisha. And Elisha was plowing the field with 12 yoke of oxen. How did Elijah signal to Elisha that he was the next prophet? Elijah took off his mantle, his robe, and put it on Elisha. So the robe in scripture is a symbol of authority and power and position. Now Jonathan not only gave David his robe, he gave him his armor, sword, bow, and belt. What did we just say? There's only two people in Israel that have armor. Only two swords. Jonathan has one. Saul has the other. 
Jonathan gives all his weapons to David. Just so you know, there's no army supply depot. You can't go down and get a requisition for another set. There is no more armor. If Jonathan's going to battle now, he's going to battle with an ox goad. You know, a stick, right? Jonathan's a warrior. Jonathan's commanding one-third of Israel's army, and he gives his weapons to David. He's disarming himself. You know what that means? There's a whole higher probability he's going to die in battle than he was before. Do you think this is sacrificial love? Oh, baby, big time. Interesting that Jesus said in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that one what? Lay down his life for his friends. You know, I, I've read that before and I thought, boy, Jesus literally laid down his life for us. Died in our place. Most of us will probably not be asked to die for our friends. Literally lay down your life in a single event. You know how we lay down our lives for our friends? We don't do it all at once. We lay down our lives for our friends when we lay down our time for our friends. You know how love is spelled? T-I-M-E. Time. That's love. Time spells love. Someone told me one time that dying for your friend all at once or dying for somebody else all at once is like having a million dollars and you give them the million dollars and it's cashed and the money's gone. Let me tell you how my perception of marriage is and friendship. You have a million dollars in quarters and every day you're doling out those quarters, right? To the people you love. You get it? You're giving them your time. You're sacrificing your self-centered little interests for the benefit of them. Yes? When they need something, you lay down your rights and pick up your responsibilities to minister those whom you are your friends, whom you are called to serve. One day at a time. That's laying down your life for your friends. Now, Jonathan's going to an extreme. Jonathan's literally disarming himself in order to arm David. He's putting his life at risk for his best friend. It's interesting that Jonathan's relationship with David in the Old Testament reminds me of John the Baptist's relationship with Jesus in the New Testament. John the Baptist has been preaching. He is the man, and he's preaching, and great crowds are coming to him until Jesus shows up. Jesus comes, and he's preaching, and he's baptizing the other side of the Jordan, and John's disciples come to him and say, John, all those crowds that used to follow you they're now following him. What are you going to do about that? Right? You're being abandoned. John said, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from heaven. I am not the Christ. I have been sent before him. Verse 30. He must increase. I must decrease. See, John the Baptist knew who he was and he knew who he wasn't. He was not the Messiah but he was a friend of the Messiah who loved and served and humbled himself to fulfill the role that God called him to do. Jonathan knew he was not going to be the next king. And he laid down that right in order to love and serve the next king, David. Verse 5. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. <clears throat> and Saul set him over the men of war. And it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So Jonathan is serving David, right? By disarming himself. What's verse 5 tell you David's doing? Who's David serving? Saul, right? So Jonathan serves David. David serves Saul. Who is Saul serving? Himself. Now the king should be serving the king of kings, right? Right? So if David is serving Jonathan, Jonathan, I mean, Jonathan serves David, David serves Saul, Saul should be serving the king of kings. That's the way you maintain the proper sphere. One of the reasons I love Valley Baptist Church is because we are led by men and women who serve Jesus, who love Jesus more than they love themselves. That's why you're here, because we have servant leadership operating in this body of Christ. Saul does not do that. Saul promotes David to a position of military leadership because he wants him to win battles. 
And David, of course, puts his life on the line every time he goes out to battle. And it says that God honors David by blessing his work so that he prospers in whatever he does. And it seems the more God blesses David, the more Saul hates David. Now, when you read the rest of chapter 18, it is absolutely incredible to me. You're going to see Paul getting, Saul getting increasingly fearful and increasingly paranoid. Saul does some bizarre stuff in the next two chapters. It records the number of ways that Saul tries to kill David. I want you to think about David. David is 17. He's the new hero of Israel. He's been anointed to be the next king. And the current king, Saul, is probably 60s. And he is committed to killing him. And you're 17 years old and someone's trying to kill you. Over and over and over. And what do you do as a 17-year-old? What would you do when you were 17? David's only 17, right? It says in chapter 18, twice they're having dinner and Saul throws his spear at David and tries to pin him to the wall. You know, he best not nap at the dinner table, right? I mean, you would really want to stay awake there. When he misses David twice, he tries other ways to kill David. He has two daughters, Saul does, Merab and Michael. He offers both of those to David in marriage if he will only continue to fight the Philistines. And you think, well, he wants to kill the Philistines. No, he hopes the Philistines will kill David. He says his motive is, I don't want to kill him myself, but if they take him out and he dies in battle, we'll give him a hero's funeral and my throne is insecure. So Saul thinks he can beat God. God already said, David's the next king. Saul says, no, he's not. I'm going to kill him. Right? So when David continues to win battles, Saul puts a contract out on his life. Go to 1 Samuel 19. 1 Samuel 19. You know, some things never change. When you read this, you think, oh my goodness. 1 Samuel 19, verse 1. Now Saul has failed multiple times to kill David himself or to have the Philistines kill him. So now chapter 19, verse 1. Now Saul told Jonathan his son and all his servants to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. Now, therefore, please be on your guard in the morning. You know, we would say, watch your back, dude. You know, like rubberneck everything because they're out to get you. And stay in a secret place and hide yourself. Verse 3. I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. If I find out anything, then I will tell you. Verse 4. Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Do not let the king sin against his servant David, since he has not sinned against you, and since his deeds have been very beneficial to you. Verse 5. For David took his life in his hand and struck the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause? So Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Saul was, you know, uh, a little demented. He forgot that within a matter of days. But anyway, verse 7. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these words, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as formerly. Here's the principle. A friend tells you the truth, cares about your future, and protects your reputation. A friend tells you the truth, cares about your future, and protects your reputation. Jonathan told David very hard truth. My dad wants you dead. Pretty hard, right? Now, one thing you'll notice about friends versus friends. A real friend will not only inform you of problems, a real friend will help you craft solutions. How many of you have lots of people that will tell you what's wrong? How many of you have people that will actually help sit down and craft solutions to the problems that we all know we have? Yeah, those are friends. The friends are people who will say, I don't know what the solution is. Let's work this out. So Jonathan is a friend. He not only informs David of a hard truth, what the problem is, but he helps him craft a solution. Jonathan says, go hide right now. I'm going to go to bat for you tomorrow when I see my dad the king. 
So next morning, Jonathan is now protecting David's reputation in front of Saul. He defends David's character to his father. Jonathan's a very interesting, wonderful friend. He's a reconciler. He's a, a man who brings people together. He's a servant to both his friend David and his father Saul, and he wants to reconcile him. He seeks to persuade Saul to reconcile with David because he says, David has not done one thing that has not benefited you. David's not done one thing that's not benefited you. As a matter of fact, he's only benefited you. He killed Goliath and every, benefited Israel, benefited your kingdom. So Saul, Jonathan is advocating for David. And he's telling Saul, don't kill him. Real friends protect your reputation when you're not present. Real friends protect your reputation when you're not present. You know, we, what, what do we say? What's the vernacular? So-and-so's got your back. That means when you're not around, they've got your back. That's a friend. They protect you. Protect your reputation. So Saul listens to Jonathan. David's now restored to court. And he thinks all is well. Right? Boy, was that not true. Saul is jealous. Saul is disobedient. Saul's getting paranoid. Saul is afflicted by an evil spirit because of his disobedience. And he tries to kill David over and over and over and over. If you look at verse 9 to 10 here real briefly in, verse, in chapter 19, verse 9 to 10, David's playing the harp, right? Because Saul's got an evil spirit. David's serving Saul. David's trying to, you know, calm him down. And Saul tries to spear him. And he misses again. Verse 11 to 17 of this same chapter, Saul sends assassins to David's house to stake out the house. He's going to ambush him in the morning, right? David's wife, who's named Michael, it's Saul's daughter, she says to David, if you don't get out of Dodge tonight, they're going to kill you in the morning. She lowers him out of their second story window at night. Their house was probably on the wall of the city. David flees. David runs to the prophet Samuel. Now, that'd be a pretty good place to go, right? You go to the prophet. And Samuel is running a school of the prophets. He has a school where he's training people to interpret the law and execute justice for the downtrodden, etc., etc. Saul sends a group of murderers. I'm in verse 18 here. Saul sends a group of murderers, three groups of assassins, to kill David in the school of the prophets. Right? He wants him dead. So the first group comes into the school of the prophets and they're going to kill David and the Holy Spirit falls on them and they prophesy, which means they are unable to carry out their act. They begin to prophesy truth under the influence of the Holy Spirit, even though their hearts are evil and they completely fail to kill David. Saul goes, hum, if you don't at first succeed, try, try again. Sends group two. What happens to group two? Same thing. Now, if you were Saul, you would say, twice the Holy Spirit's fallen on this group. Saul says, let's do it a third time, right? If you don't at first succeed, for heaven's sakes, try something else, right? Not Saul, right? So he finally figures out that good assassin help is hard to find and that murder is a job you just can't delegate, you know? If you want to kill somebody right, you just have to do it yourself. So Saul goes himself to the school of the prophets to kill David. Now, what would you conclude? Three groups of messengers have failed because they ran into the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to go because I'm big and bad and I'm King Saul and the Holy Spirit certainly will not overpower me. What happens? He falls down, strips off all his clothes, lays flat on the ground all night before Samuel and prophesies. He's finding out that you cannot resist God. I, I find this incredible. Um, if it wasn't so tragic, it would be comic. You know, this guy, he's going in there and he's going to kill David with his own hands. He's mad as heck at God. He's resisting. He's rebelling against God. He's the big king and he lays out naked all night long, prophesying in humiliation, giving God glory against his will. <laughs> and he still doesn't learn. You know, it's incredible. You know, what have we said in this class over and over again? Sin makes you, the more you sin, the stupider you get. It just happens over and over again. 
God has clearly said David is going to be the next king. Saul will never be able to kill him. Saul, remember, Saul is not really fighting David. Saul's at war with God. It's a battle he's always going to lose. At the end, you're going to find out, we'll get to here in a few weeks, Saul literally will kill himself in his war against God. Now, if you've read chapter 18 and 19 carefully, there are 12 attempts on David's life. You're 17 years old. This all took place in probably less than a year. And 12 times the current king's trying to kill you. Literally. Count them. 12. And he's going to make more in chapter 20 and 21. David now goes to Jonathan in the first part of verse 20, chapter 20, and says, What in the world have I done? Is there anything I've done to deserve this? Have I sinned? What's going on here? I don't understand why he would kill me. He can't figure it out. Is there anything going on in your life that you haven't figured out yet? You are doing exactly what God wants you to do, and you're running into people that just don't like you. Right? Here's the point. Some people will oppose you just because you're following God. That's it. The only reason they oppose you is because they don't like God. Right? David was following God. Saul was at war with God, so Saul was at war with David. There are people in our world that don't like Jesus, and because they don't like Jesus, they won't like you. It's not about your doggy breath. Nothing to do with your hairdo. It's who you love and who you serve. You know something? You're in good company. They didn't like Jesus either. When you face opposition in the world because you love Jesus, like David faced opposition because he loved God, it's real comforting to have good friends like Jonathan. It's real comforting to be around people of faith. One of the reasons that God's commanded us not to forsake our assembling together in church, local churches, because God has given us each other. Amen? He's given us his friends. He's adopted us into his family. He's told us, love one another. Put each other's interests ahead of your own. Speak truth to each other. Help your brothers and sisters find and fix and face those problems. Protect each other's reputation so that we can do life together. Aren't you glad we get to do life together on this planet yeah. as opposed to alone? That's one of the beauties of the body of Christ. Okay, Tom's going to get ready to come up and do prayer requests. Let me give you our four summary points just to make sure you have something to do in the next 167 hours until we see you next week, Lord willing. Point one, people of faith believe that God is never limited by circumstances, especially mine. You all have circumstances. God is not limited by your circumstances. Point two, people of faith trust God enough to act on what he says. Some of you this week, I'm pretty convinced, are going to come into a situation where you know that it's time to obey and you're going to look at the consequences and you're going to go, God, are you nuts? <laughs> when that happens, you know what I will tell you? Go back to point one. God is never limited by your circumstances. Right? When you obey, God moves. Jonathan found that out. You can find that out too. Don't be impressed with your circumstances or your consequences. Be impressed with the God of glory that you serve. Point three. Friends who love God serve each other and not themselves. And the last point, a friend tells you the truth, cares about your future, and protects your reputation. Okay, you have enough work to do? Yep. All right. I love you. Because I love you, we tell the truth because that's what God says. Now that you know, see you next week.